Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm the cabin boy. How are you, cabin boy? Oh, very good. First one uh, into the studio, so yes. all excited. We caught up with you a couple of weeks ago when you were down in Hobart for the Wooden Boat Festival. Yes, so far away, but oh so close across the airwaves. I want to, so, talk, yeah. want to talk to you about that in a minute. Oh. And your epic journey. It was epic. There and back. Mm. Before we do that, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Thank you very much, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Thank you very much, Steph, for things to do today. And... Um, yeah, great program. Tim, as always, you can catch Tim every weekend, apart from the occasional one when, you know, for whatever reason he's not here. But anyway. Well, when the world stops, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you brought him a coffee this morning, so he's happy. Yeah. Is he? Well, surely. Oh, he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just turned around to see if he was there. But yes, of course, you can catch Tim every weekend from 6 until 9am, both Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we have a huge program, so we're going to launch straight into it. And it's interesting, um, we talk a bit about themes that emerge through the program. I was thinking today's theme, this, today's lineup doesn't really have a theme, but then I realised that it does. I'll tell you what I reckon the theme is in a minute. Um, so we are going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Alicia Belgrove shortly from Deakin University. And you might remember previous conversations we've had with Alicia. Uh, she is a phycologist, uh, also known as a seaweed nerd. Yeah, well, I thought psychologist, psych. What, what's what is she? She's, yeah, phycologist. I know. I had to look at that word again because I'm thinking, why would you be a psychologist for seaweed? <laughs> so it's phycologist, P H Y. There's no S in there. Um, and so yeah, they're seaweed specialists and uh, international gathering of phycologists <laughs> uh, were <laughs> gathered in Hobart uh, a couple of weeks ago and for the 24th. International Seaweed Symposium. So we're going to be speaking with Alicia about the conference, um, some emerging themes in seaweed research and where the future of it is. So really looking forward to that. And hopefully she's got a couple of good recipes. Oh, she's got plenty. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know that for a fact. Alicia's amazing. She, um, she did her postdoc in Japan where, of course, uh-huh. Using seaweed in cooking yeah. is, goes back a very, very, very long time. So uh, we'll talk to her about that as well because the uh, seaweed industry, of course, is the big emerging yeah. emerging thing. Uh, we are then going to have a dive report with Myra Kelly. Now, we were meant to have a dive report a couple last week, sorry, uh, when Anthony was in uh, in the studio with Farm. Um, it was completely my bad. I forgot to line it up. So Myra was... Um, in situ, on site at Frankston Pier with a bunch of divers for Clean Up Australia Day. So, yes, I felt very bad after that. So we're going to catch up with Myra for a dive report but also look at a wrap-up of last week's oh, cool. activities. Um, they did some incredible work down there and pulled up an amazing amount of stuff from under Frankston Pier. So good on all of those people. Um, then we are going to cross to Sydney to speak with Professor Rob Harcourt. He is a marine scientist from Macquarie University and has been part of this huge global effort in understanding whale feeding behaviour around mm-hmm. the world and looking at how it's changed over time. I guess the, the problem with whales, of course, is that it's a huge ocean yeah. out there and how do you know where a whale's going to be at any given point in time? Especially when they're feeding too, yes. Yeah, that's right. So a bunch of um, scientists from all over the world, 36 different countries put their data 
data sets together and now they've published a paper in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences and completed this jigsaw puzzle of where humpbacks go to feed. So oh, so specific whales, humpbacks, yeah. Yeah, humpbacks, but there's a couple of others in there as mm-hmm. well. So, yeah, really, really cool research. And then Cabin Boy. Well, we're going to have someone in, Peter Ford. Uh, well, he's, I have to admit, cousin-in-law of mine, but uh, I've done a lot of sailing with him. He's going to be uh, heading off around the world around the, in the Clipper Round the World series. So we're going to see, uh, ask him all about that, how to get involved, uh, what's what the cost is even. Like, kind of just get down to the nitty-gritty and, and why, because I don't think it's one of the things I'd ever want to do, mm-hmm. you know, around the world for, um, well, there's quite a few legs, but we'll ask him all the in-depth questions for sure. Excellent. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, just over two weeks ago, a global collective of psychologists, or using our term of endearment, seaweed nerds, <laughs> converged in Hobart to spend a few days talking algae and seaweed at the 24th International Seaweed Symposium. Over five days, speakers from all over the world covered anything and everything to do with microalgae, kelp and other seaweeds that form such a critical part of the world's marine ecosystems. Deakin University's Dr Alicia Belgrove was there. She joins us now to tell us all about the conference, some of the key themes and the future of seaweed research. Good Good morning, Alicia. Welcome back to Radio Marinara. Thank you very much. Good morning, Dr. Brown. Always <laughs> nice to be with you. <laughs> Likewise. Now, um, our listeners might remember you from when you've been on the show previously talking about your seaweed research and your work in advocating for a seaweed industry in Australia. How's that all going? It's going pretty well. I've got to say, we've got a fabulous team working with us at the Deacon Seaweed Research Group. And um, yeah, all sorts of exciting things are happening from the Production end through to the end use end and product development. So it's all all matter of exciting things going on here at Deakin. I've got Cabin Boy with me and um, earlier in the show he wondered whether you had any good seaweed recipes and I said, yeah, I reckon you... And in fact, I said, yes, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did hear him say that. I was listening to you online. I, I walked to the top of the hill in, in where I live to get a, um, some 4G recipes. <laughs> so I could listen online to you. But uh, yes, we do have mountains of recipes and actually that's a, a bit of a side uh, passion project of mine where I'm working with fabulous friends, Sally Akiyama, uh, to create a seaweed cookbook, believe it or not. So, but it's uh, it's one of those things that takes a bit of time around the other um, day-to-day academic activities in my life. <laughs> And it's something that um, I'll mention this just while we're here and then we'll get into the, the conference, but some, it, it's interesting. It's not just using seaweed in recipes. I reckon Cam Smith's probably listening as well with, with his pricked up here, but also um, uh, using extracts of seaweeds in all kinds of different things, using the emulsions. And that's a, um, was, we talked about this last year, um, some collaborative work that you were doing with Little Lawn Distillery to create a gin with seaweed emulsion. Oh, yes, yes, that was a fabulous little project. <laughs> we did uh, create the, well, I cl- collaborated with them for them to create the Yarra Strength um, bespoke gin sort of one-off, uh, which was fabulous, where we selected and supplied the um, uh, seaweeds and then helped to work out how to blend those in to make a, a fabulous, very Melbourne gin, which is, um, I think... Maybe still available. I'm not sure. Oh, it, it was, was like last year. It was absolutely amazing, and I've got to also say that the water was taken out of the Yarra, which was the most extraordinary component to this. That to know that you were drinking gin made out of water from the Yarra with a seaweed emulsion in it, and it tasted incredible. I think that's the other important thing here. That you know, these things that seem like they're one-offs, or that everything starts with a one-off, and, mm. and you know, the, the fact that this can potentially go somewhere is incredible. What does the actual seaweed add to it, though? The taste or 
Yeah, very much the taste. I, yeah. I mean, seaweed gin is not actually a new thing. There are various people around the world doing it. Um, the way that uh, Brad and his team at Little Lawn did it was quite different. I won't go into those uh, those trade secrets, potentially. But um, we were able to essentially work with seaweed extracts and, and add them in on a very much uh, sort of taste-by-taste um way so that you could actually really blend the flavours and really enhance the, the flavour of the gin and make that seaweed speak to the, the rest of the botanicals that were blended in there. So yeah. it was really fun. I like how uh, we've got this whole world of seaweed to use it in many different ways and we're, we're making alcohol out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we are also working at the other end and the, the, the uh, incredible health benefits from it. And I guess in, in really that's why um, where the cookbook project has come from is because everybody keeps telling me they want to use it, they want to eat it, they know it's good for them, but they don't really know how to in the Australian sort of slash Western context. Mm-hmm. So our cookbook project is really trying to, I guess, bring seaweeds into mainstream um, kitchens of Australia and, you know, and, and try to make it easy for people to get, you know, that, that bit of seaweed into their diet every day in ways that they may not even necessarily know there. So sometimes there'll be hidden ingredients, sometimes they'll be the main players, but... Um, yeah, to be sure, hopefully they'll all be good. <laughs> it's perfect leading to talking about the conference now. As I mentioned, you've just come back from Hobart for the 24th International Seaweed Symposium. Had a look at the conference program and we've already put a link to that on our Facebook page. If you just go to today's entry and then you'll just see there's a great photo of you, Alicia, speaking to an audience uh, about with, with the paper that you're presenting. So just click on that and then you can find the link. Um, huge and diverse gathering. And I was just wondering about the main themes of the papers and posters being presented this year? Yeah, it was really big and, and really diverse. It was fabulous. I mean, I don't know if you realise that the conference was postponed a year because of um, COVID and uh, and we ended up offering it in hybrid mode. So um, there was about 500 local like in-person delegates and about another 300 um, online from around the world. And so you can imagine with, you know, 800 some delegates um, and all those presentations, I'm not sure how many presentations there were in total, but posters and orals, you know, there's a lot of diversity there. So, and we had uh, each morning there was um, uh, three to four plenary, half hour plenary speakers, so lots of diversity in the plenary presentations too, which was fabulous. And so those listeners that may not know what goes on in a plenary, basically it's all in a big theatre where everybody's in there together. And then uh, the former, everyone listening to these, you know, um, high-profile people that are coming in and talking about their research on given things. And then um, after morning tea, we'd sort of separate into, I think there were six concurrent sessions with different um, themes for each session. And so those are the sessions, I guess, uh, lots of diversity, but um, there's uh, sessions on kelp forest restoration. There were a mini-symposia that was led by the Kelp Forest Alliance. I think you had Aaron Eager on the show a few weeks ago. Yes. Um there was a session on um, seaweeds and uh, roles in carbon sequestration, um, bioplastics, um, the Yakima industry, and talking about the extract. Um, um, from the, the Yakima industry is essentially founded around the um, carrageenan uh, extracts, which are the gelatinous compounds in that particular seaweed or group of seaweeds that is used for all sorts of things um, in the, the... It's basically uh, one of the phycocolloids that's used in 
um, a range of different food products, but also things, you know, some of these phycocolloids, alginates, agar, carrageen, and you know, listeners might have heard of some of those, using beer, toothpaste, ice cream, paint, you know, um, as processed meats, all sorts of stuff, as well as, you know, standard jelly-type things that you might expect. And also use, I was reading, in ageing-related diseases, so in the medical field as well. Yeah, there's lots of um, lots of potential applications. And so for alginates, for example, so the paper I was presenting on, we were looking at um, uh, characterising alginates in um, a few different Australian species and trying to look at their um, potential application in both food and biomedical applications. And so they, these alginates are one of the, the, they're the, I guess, principal gelling compound in the cell walls of brown algae. And um, they also have the capacity to bind um, minerals and metals. So when we're talking about them for biomedical applications, as well as for food, obviously, we want to make sure they're pretty clean of heavy metals or, or not, you know, not contaminated with those heavy metals. And the different um, sort of molecular composition of those alginates can affect the, the way they can be used. And so um, alginates have been used in or are used in a whole range of biomedical and pharmaceutical applications. They're the foundation of most dental mouldings. Um, so when you go in and get your, you know, your, the moulding of your teeth to see if you need braces or whatever, the dentist, that's usually an alginate-based gel. Wow. And uh, they're used in wound dressings. Um, and because, yeah, and, and, and so this is one of the areas that we're looking at. You can spin them into fibres and, you know, use them in wound dressings. And it's... One of the things is, <clears throat> excuse me, they're really good for absorbing water or fluid. And so in a wound dressing, they can soak up all that ooky gooky stuff that comes out of your, <laughs> your, um, your wound. And importantly, they also have really um, good antibacterial, antiviral properties. So they can not only soak it up, but they can also then heal it and prevent any infection coming in. And they, because they're good at binding metals, they can bind things like, um, or minerals like zinc, for example, which is obviously really important in wound healing. So, yeah, all sorts of exciting things going on in that space too that, you know, people may not necessarily be thinking about. There's obviously a lot of talk about, um, you know, the roles of seaweeds in food and human nutrition and and indeed in, you know, um, animal feeds for mitigating methane, for example. And, of course, there was lots of talk, talk in that space as well. Um, you and I have known each other a long time, Leash. Did you ever think when we were doing our graduate research in the late 90s that seaweed research would have grown to where it is today? Or, uh, just, if, to me, it just feels like the very idea that the massive interest in seaweed research that's happening now would have all just felt a little bit nuts back then. Yeah, look, um, totally, Brian. And, and uh, you, you mentioned earlier that I did my postdoc in Japan and, you know, studying as a... I uh, was doing a PhD in seaweed, seaweed ecology at the time and... Uh, then go in Australia and then going to Japan, it was just, you know, a completely different mindset in public perception around seaweeds at that time. And then, of course, when I came back, you know, it was like stepping back into this different world where people were, you know, a bit of a social pariah, to be honest, studying seaweeds. Whereas um, now, you know, I tell people I study seaweeds and I'm a bit closer to that rock star that I was in Japan. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Great that you got that, um, that you know, that standing out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we're almost out of time. We've got about a minute left. Um, I did want to talk to you about the um, that uh, the you also had with you uh, Wadarung elder Auntie Judy Dalton Walsh, but I don't think we're going to have really time to go into that and give that justice. Might um, 
if, if it's okay with you, organise a time um, maybe that we could speak with you, Auntie Judy, and also Zoe Britton. We've had Zoe on the program talking about um, the work that she's been doing looking at the um, importance of seaweeds to traditional owner culture. But um, we'll, we'll organise that for another time, Leisha, if that's okay, because we've only really got about a minute left. Um, yeah, sure. I'm sure they'd be happy to... Um to uh, come and talk to you. Yeah, that would be great. Um, where's the 25th International Seaweed Symposium going to be? Well, excitingly for me, because it's in a place that I've always wanted to go to, it's in British Columbia. So, um, and <laughs> yes, and with the, um, the great connections that are happening there in the research space with the Indigenous communities, we're hoping that there'll be even, um, even more connection with Indigenous um, elders and, and communities at that conference. So there was a, um, there was a day before the conference where the um, local Palawa mob in Tassie brought together some of the Indigenous delegates at the conference, which is fabulous. So we're really hoping to be able to expand on that at the next one as well. Excellent. Well, if you need to be your advisor or um, maybe we can look at an outside broadcast or something like that, we, we should talk later. <laughs> Someone to carry your bag. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah I'm ready to Someone to carry my bag. You know, if I'm being a rock star at all. You know. <laughs> Always a pleasure to speak with you, Leish, and we'll, um, we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks very much, Dr. Brown. Thanks for joining us. See you. CM5 now. Dr. Alicia (laughs) Belgrove there from Deakin University, also from her group, Would You Like Seaweed With That, talking about the International Seaweed Symposium, uh, which took place in Hobart a couple of weeks ago. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber... Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Time for a dive report with Myra Kelly. Good morning, Myra. Good morning, Brian, Tavern Boy. How are you? Good. Have you got your wetsuit on? Uh, I am. I'm about to gear up. We've just had to uh, dump me at Blair Gowrie at the morning um, and go and get our second tank filled for uh, a big day below the water. Fantastic. Um, let's just do a quick dive report first and then I uh, want to spend a minute or so talking about the incredible clean-up efforts last week at Flinders, at Flinders, at Frankston Pier. Yes, yep. Um, well, look, I'm, I'm at Blair at the moment and the water is like glass. Um, there's divers already in the water. Um, I have spoken to people that are at Rye this morning and can confirm Rye is looking amazing. Um, there's apparently been filming every night um, for the last few nights at Rye. Uh, and visibility at night there has been great as well, so can confirm that. Um, uh, visibility out on the boats is also looking really good too. Uh, boats uh, today, I believe all boats are booked out, but there are spaces available for Monday and Tuesday uh, to make the most of the amazing conditions that we've got down here on the peninsula. It is a long weekend too, so uh, yeah. It, it is. It is. So, um, yeah, absolutely make the most of any opportunity that you've got while the sun's out. The swell's down. Um, we've got about a metre swell and the swell is dropping on Tuesday to 0.7. So, oh, wow. um, really light winds um, here at Blair at the moment. Um, look, it, it's saying it's between about um, 8 and 13 knots, but there is just not a breath of wind here. It's gorgeous. And that's absolutely gorgeous. That's quite common for this time of the year, isn't it? To use your favourite word there, cabin boy. Autumnal. Autumnal. 
<laughs> so all that crossover between seasons. We <laughs> exactly, and it's like it's so often people. It, you sort of have this cyclical thing where people get excited about summer coming, but January is often really windy, yeah. and February can be too. And then everything sort of starts to calm down in March, and the water's still warm. And it, as you're saying, it's just perfect dive conditions. It's it's perfect dive conditions down here. We were in the water um, here at Blair yesterday. We did close on three hours, um, and visibility was the best that's been here for a few days. Uh, and then we packed everything up and did a, a sort of an impromptu few hours under Frankston um, late yesterday evening. Um, and visibility under Frankston wasn't so great, but still managed to do some amazing photography um, with the local seahorse residents that we've got down there. Uh, so, yeah, you know, any time that you spent below the surface is good. doesn't matter uh, disability. You can always always make them. They lemonade out of lemons. That's, that's exactly. You can always find something to see. Hey, you mentioned filming. Yeah. Is, are people filming anything in particular or is it just that it's really great conditions for filming? Uh, no, I believe um, there is a documentary that is going to be streaming 24. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I'm keen to find out more about it, but it's uh, obviously showcasing the amazing marine life that we've got yeah. uh, on the peninsula. That's awesome. Well, we can look forward to that. And I've Something seen to look forward to. And I've seen reports of um, a few spider crabs starting to pop around. We're not going to give the location. <laughs> no, I look. I tried hard yesterday to get the location. Um, I was in the water with uh, with one of the divers yesterday at Blair and. Unfortunately, he flooded his camera um, and then decided he was going to get out of the water and go on snorkel uh, and only went a little way down the road. And, uh, yeah, the photos that I've seen from yesterday of the aggregation was quite sizable. But, yeah, the, the location, I couldn't even get out of him. So it was uh, a <laughs> top secret. That's um, good. There's also at Rye, um, yesterday speaking to people, divers have had to change their entry and exit because of quite a large seal that has decided to uh, sunbake on the diving platform. (laughs) (laughs) They can be a little scary, those seals. As they are entitled to do. (laughs) Well, look, they're entitled to pull up, you know, pull up stumps wherever they'd like to. And I think, you know, us as divers and snorkelers, but then also the general public just need to remember that it's a wild animal and it needs its space to do its seal things. That's right. (laughs) Have have respect for uh, for the wildlife. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, I wanted to talk about last weekend's uh, really sensational clean-up effort at Frankston Pier. And my apologies again, Mario, for not passing on to Anthony and Co that you were there on location. (laughs) I still I'm going to feel bad about that all year. But you you were there. We put a photo on our um, on our Facebook page. People can have a look at, at the big army of divers who went down there and got underwater and cleaned up. Tell us about that and how that all came about. Yeah, look, super proud of the efforts um, from the, the crew from Diveline that were down there. There was uh, over 20 divers uh, and it was sort of a bit of a combined effort with Frankston Beach Patrol as well. Um, so, yeah, from what I've, what I've heard, uh, there was approximately 44 kilos of rubbish oh, removed. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So big effort by um, everybody involved uh, from below the pier. I think... Uh, one of the most interesting things they found below there was some um, Hindu amulet. Uh, really? And under Frankston, yeah, yeah. So and under Frankston last night, I also spotted some more of them um, as well. So oh. something that 
Yeah, so it's something that you tend to see. Um, I've seen below Mordialic Pier, but I've never come across it below Frankston. So, uh, yeah, um, I think Ganesh and Sh- Sh- Shiva. I might have to do a bit of brushing up on my uh, my, my Hindu. Um, I think yeah, there's so... I, I think there's a swim that's done like you know how the Greeks do the with the cross the, with the uh... cross. I think there's a, I think the Indian community also have one uh... of those. Swims. They do tend to leave them round too because my folks are down Phillip Island and. A lot of the Indian people leave that on the beach. Mum and Dad collects it all and he can't throw it out because it's too nice. So we've got a lot of Indian stuff <laughs> in the garden. It's like, Dad, throw it out, please. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, it was a, a really wonderful effort by by everybody involved. But I'd also really like to give a shout out to, you know, the, the quiet achievers that, you know, you, you don't actually need a designated Clean Up Australia Day to make a difference. Um, there's a lot of quiet achievers that you know, from the scuba diving and snorkeling world are out there with clean-up containers every time they're below the surface. Um, and also, you know, every time people walk the, walk the beaches and our piers um, and they're all working, you know, working together to, to create change to our marine habitat and the marine life by picking up all the rubbish that they come across. So, That's right. yeah, huge shout-out to everybody for their efforts. Yeah, good on you, Myra. Absolutely. We 100% echo that. And we'll be catching up with Jackie Younger next week to talk more about that and have a little bit of a forecast of some of the community-based clean-up activities going on. Um, we'll have to leave it there for now, but thanks so much for the dive report. Always a pleasure. I say always. It's been twice, but it's going to be <laughs> the case all the way through the year. We're so happy that you're on board with us, and um, we'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for having me, and, uh, yeah, I hope everybody gets out and makes the most of the weekend. Get in the water. Yeah, get in the water. Enjoy, enjoy your diving today. Thank you. Okay, Bye. chat soon. Bye. Myra Kelly there, our dive reporter. Triple R. Now, studying behaviour of whales is the marine equivalent of searching for a needle in a haystack. It's a big ocean out there and whales are not often in the same place for very long. But this week, a new paper has demonstrated how a group of scientists from different countries put their puzzle pieces of data sets together to produce a completed jigsaw of where whales go to feed. And not only that, their research is showing how changes in use of the world's oceans is not what it was, demonstrating new effects of climate change. Professor Rob Harcourt is a marine scientist from Macquarie University and a lead contributor to this research. He joins us now to talk about this impressive global research effort. Good morning, Rob. Welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara. Good morning, Brian, and thanks for the very nice words. And uh, I understand you've just got out of the surf. I did, and uh, the the cold fronts just hit, so it was perfect timing. Uh, Good timing. Now, was I right in describing whale behaviour research as being a bit like trying to find a needle in a haystack? Yeah, I think that's a really great analogy because, um, you know, for most of the whales, um, the ones that don't migrate close to shore, we have very poor information apart from the historical whaling and a very small number of satellite tracks. And even for the ones that come close to shore, where they go to do the really important things like feeding, which allows them to reproduce, is, is you know, again, uh, until until modern technology is caught up, it's been very much like, well, the whalers had records that they kept secret and went out and looked for them and, and they knocked them down and most of the whale populations, of course, got smashed long before we had um, modern technological aid. So it's a great analogy. Is it particularly tricky for some species of whales, like humpbacks, that travel really long distances? Do you find that different species sort of have different ranges in, in terms of where they travel? Well, actually, ironically, um, humpbacks are probably one of the easiest whales to study <laughs> because um, you know, the, those and southern rice, which are the ones that um, up the papers about are animals that come close to shore to breed. So they were 
accessible. So that's why we see humpback whales, you know, pouring up the east coast and the west coast of Australia every winter. Um, in fact, they'll be here in a, the early ones. will be here in a few weeks, probably, um, up here at least in Sydney. And probably some of them will be going past Tasmania in um, you know, early April. But... Um, no, but a lot of the other species of whales never come close to shore, and so they're even more even more difficult to study. But um, yeah, I mean, we we know a lot about what they do when they're in coastal waters, nice and close to shore. And people, I mean, many people now have seen whales, but it's a bit different from when I was a child, when most of them had been, um, you know, most of them had, had disappeared because we wiped them out. But um, yeah, humpbacks have come back really well. But the the difference now is we can use things like satellite tracking and, and biochemical analyses of, of, of skin tissue to, to work out what happens when they're not close to shore where we can see them. Now, this paper is really quite an impressive effort, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the pro- mentioned at the start of the program that there was a theme to this program that isn't kind of obvious when you first look at it. We've just been speaking with Dr. Alicia Belgrove uh, about the International Seaweed Symposium in Hobart a couple of weeks ago, um, and our dive report has just been telling us about you know massive cleanup effort for Clean Up Australia Day, and this is a big effort in terms of collaboration of authors from 36, well, 36 authors. I'm not sure whether that means 36 different countries, but really this is about people coming together and, and the, you know, incredible benefits that happen when the sum of parts ends up, um, you know, producing great things. How did, how did this all come together? Because you've got authors here. I've, I've got from US, Australia, Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Europe, UK, and uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, that's a... And New Caledonia too, is the lead author. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Missed that one. So that's incredible. How did the collaboration come about? Oh, well, I think, to be honest, you know, to do any good marine... Well, probably actually any good science now, you need large-scale collaboration because we're asking big questions. And we've slowly learned, it's taken us a long time, but we've slowly learned that pulling our efforts, you can ask much, much more powerful questions and actually ask the really important questions. And I think this is a, a great exemplar of that. And it, it's, it's, it's taken a long time. I and mean, we've been collecting those samples that are in the paper for you know well over 25 years. And... Um, you know, small process studies are done by people, but because we've got better means of communication and, and I think people have, have learned um, that you actually get a lot more from from joining forces with uh, on a, in, a, in a collaborative and collegial way, um, but we can really tackle the big questions. And so um, there's a lot of consortiums that have formed and, um, I'm going to give a lot of kudos here to Emma Carroll, who is the senior author on the paper. She's a, a young up-and-coming researcher from New Zealand who has gone to extraordinary efforts to pull everyone together. Um, and um, this is one of actually a number of papers that have come that, uh, that Emma is, is the lead or, or, or one of the lead authors on. So and um, we've been working closely together for oh, 10, 15 years. And, you know, it's... Um, it's really it's a, a maturation of, of of science into a into a, a way in which we can we can ask these very big questions, which we have to because we've got really big problems in the in the world now that you know, yeah. humans have pushed in. That's right. So um, let's spend a minute talking about your methodology. What did you do? Like we're talking about different samples, um, and ha- ha- what sort of methodology did you use, and how did you get to your conclusions? Oh, so this is really cool because it's really an example of why there's so many people because there's a lot of different expertise on the paper. So we used a number of different things. One is um, there's a 
the, and I have to give you a little bit of the history of whaling for it to make sense. So right whales, the ones that we're working on, they were called right whales because they are, they come close to shore, they're curious about boats, and they're a massive whale with a very thick blubber layer, which meant that they um, not only have a lot in them, I mean, females can be up to 80 tonnes, um, so they're um, absolutely massive, but they float because they've got so much blubber when they're harpooned, and they're slow. So they were called the right whale by the by the whalers because they were easy to get to, and they come up and effectively they were the whale for the slaughter. Um, and so this meant that they were one of the earliest groups. There's the North Atlantic right whale, the North Pacific right whale, and the Southern right whale, which encompasses, which is the subject of our study, and that encompasses the whole Southern Hemisphere. Um, and they were wiped out first. Before, long before any of the other whales were really tackled because they were the perfect animal to hunt with it before you had before the invention of the whaling harpoon or anything. What this meant is that, you know, like the early European settlers of Australia and Aotearoa um, were whalers and they were coming down to get this huge harvest of, of very easy-to-collect whales that were highly profitable. I mean, they, when people first settled in Hobart and in Wellington in, in Aotearoa, they used to complain in their journals about the sounds of whales keeping them awake at night. They were so thick with whales. Wow! And but but very quickly they were they were they were knocked out. We'll we'll have to jump straight to the findings. I think I'm just sort of looking at the clock. Uh, and oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> the reason the reason I was saying this is that um, they they came back. They only started to come back um, this century, and then the Russians had this illegal Soviet whaling that knocked them right down. And this is crucial because what we've done is we've analysed historical records from whaling, and then the whaling records from the Soviet whales, which looking at where they killed them, that gave us an idea of where the animals were found. And then using tissue samples collected over the last 30 years, we can look at um, an isoscape or a map of the oceans, which allows us to look at the the chemical constituents of different parts of the ocean so we can work out where they were foraging. And so what we've done is we've compared the historical records from whaling and from the Soviet era um, with contemporary records from animals that we've collected tissue samples from. And we've shown that in the South Atlantic, the animals are still foraging the sort of mid-latitudes. But down below New Zealand and Australia, they seem to have shifted further down into the polar regions, yeah. suggesting that there's been a change in the distribution of the krill and copepods, which are their major prey items. So it's showing differences in how um, the fundamental basis of the food web, which is krill, which is the main source of food for nearly all the southern predators, uh, and certainly instrumental to the food chain, is changing in different ways in different parts of the southern ocean. And that's good. It's absolutely critical research because it's showing, you know, we... The, the impacts of climate change in a real sense, that we've got animals that are now being impacted in terms of their food supply and where they need to go to get that food. And, and this is where this sort of research is is so, so important because it demonstrates that. And it's a, as, you, as we pointed out, it's a collective effort from 36 different countries around the world that have all come together and are saying the same thing. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is that the, the, because these whales were so heavily harvested, they're not like back to where the numbers were back in the pre-whaling days. So we know it's not competition for resources. No. It's actually a shift. 
And that's the crucial part, actually, of the, of the puzzle. Rob, it's been fantastic speaking with you and we could talk for another half hour. Um, we have to move on because we have another guest lined up, but we'd love to get you back on to talk more about this and, as you mentioned, um, more research coming out with the work that Emma is leading. So I might even try and organise a time with both of you to be on the program. We can talk more about this work. No worries at all. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Been a pleasure. Uh, bye for now. I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Well, Professor Rob Harcourt from Macquarie University. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Hi, I'm Valerie Taylor. Sharks don't really worry me because, as we all know, they're beautiful animals. Another beautiful thing is Radio Marinara, Sundays at 9am on 3RR. And you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RR. You are. Now, if you've got a little bit of time on your hands and you've ever wanted to race around the world on a 70-foot yacht, well, our next guest will may have the answer for you. He's the skipper of the beautiful wooden yacht Irene. He has multiple bass straight crossings to his name, including a solo crossing, and you would definitely want him on the tiller in a blow. Peter Ford, welcome to Radio Marinara. G'day, crew. So, um, you've got a little bit of time on your hand lately, and uh, you're embarking on the uh, Clip Around the World series. I am indeed. Recently retired from business, and um, this has been an ambition uh, for quite a while, and I had to wait. I had to retire to, to do this bloody thing. I was going to say uh, we'll fi- we'll find out why you want to do this thing, but yep. tell us about the Clipper Around the World series and what it's about. Yeah, so the Clipper Around the World is a, a almost a legacy from uh, Robin Knox Johnson or Sir Robin Knox Johnson, and he was the the English guy who won the first um, solo Around the World race unassisted in the sixties. And not everyone can uh, afford to do this kind of thing or even uh, do it on their own. So they put uh, 20 years ago, they put together this program and um, to race around the world with uh, a few big yachts and uh, amateur crew and professional skippers. Yeah. So how many yachts are in it? Uh, there's 11 in this edition. Yep. Uh, all identical, 70 footers, mm-hmm. um, designed for uh, downwind or crosswind sailing. And the crew, how many... Uh, about 20 on the crew with a, uh, a professional skipper and a first mate. So there's a bunch of people that have never sailed together before. And uh, with these 11 teams, it's pretty amazing. And maybe never sailed in their lives too. Well, I do. Yes, on these yeah. <laughs> on the uh, the forums of the um, Clipper crew, these people say I've never got on a boat before, some oh, wow. of them. So they're really taking their life. It's called the race of your life. A race of your life. Yeah. <laughs> can, can I just ask about that? That is a big thing to undertake if you've never been on a boat to doing yeah. something like that. Completely. How do you even know if you get seasick? Well, they do find out uh, pretty quickly, <laughs> yes. I can tell I you. Bet they do. <laughs> I can and, attest uh, to that. Yes, right, Brett can tell you that. Um, so there's, they have a, an extensive training course that um, well, I'm heading over to the UK next month. Uh, and if you don't get through all the training, you don't, you don't get through. Onto the onto the race. Oh, so they kind of yeah get you. Well, yeah. cull, but you got to you got to fork out time and energy and, uh, and emotion not, to get there. Oh, and it's not cheap money wise either. Uh, no, you were going to push me. There. No, no, no. Your wife may be listening, so we don't need to go there. Uh, yeah. Money wise, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that, that's an amazing concept. Like just yep. to get 
a team of 20 people on a boat yep. for? Uh, what's the shortest leg? How long does that go for? Uh, I think the shortest leg's about uh, two and a half weeks. Three weeks is yeah. kind of average. They wow. do about um, anything between 4,800 nautical miles and the longest leg is about six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 miles. Yeah. So yeah. you've signed up for two legs. Signed up for two legs. Yeah. Well, I got I got onto one leg um, <laughs> because uh, I was a bit late putting my applications in for the legs that I really wanted. And um, a couple of months later, I get the call up to say, hey, those legs, that, that leg you want is yeah. now available. And by the way, there's another spare one. So... They've you know, upsold I you. I begged and I'd look, I mowed lawns, I did dishes, <laughs> I did lots of things to get the second leg. So... Uh, it, you're going through the Southern Ocean. That's one of your legs to do. That was the key one I wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. So Cape Town to uh, Frio. Yeah. Why? Um, I'm not very smart. But I can <laughs> lift heavy things. But it's, it's one of those. Psychological I do like things. the adventure. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I thought if I could do the Southern Ocean, then nothing much should scare me in the future. I just want to be a better yachtsman. Yeah. 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 But but even twenty people like you're, you're going to be um, you're going to be wet. Constantly, you're gonna, and you're making been, it sound appealing. Well, that's why I can't understand yeah. why anyone would do it. But there has been a few deaths too over the race. Um, yeah, well, they're kept. Yeah, the fatalities are kept fairly quiet. Mm-hmm. But um, they have. Um, there's been three, unfortunately, over that period of time. Yep, yep. But yeah, we don't mention those. We don't yeah. mention those. Yeah. But you're in the right gear. I mean, everyone's professionally trained, mm-hmm. and it was just circumstances that yeah. uh, they were lost. And um, the gut happens. Oh. There has to be something there too for um, it's an epic trip of a lifetime yeah. or an epic um, experience, not yep. just a trip. It's an epic experience of a lifetime. It'd be sort of the equivalent of someone wanting to go and climb Everest yeah, or, exactly. or something like that. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I think about it. So, what are you hoping to get out of it? Or yeah. Um, well, wetness, as you yeah. outlined. Um, <laughs> Sleeping in someone else's bunk. Yeah, so, yeah, so hot bunking, uh, I can't hardly wait for that. But so there's half the crew up, half the crew down. Hang on, let's. Oh. What, what's hot bunking? You're yeah, top, we better top top explain that. First yeah. available bed. Oh, no, top and tailing, no, that'd be the dream. No, it's um, so a crew, you have uh, watches, so four-hour watches. So uh, half the crew's up running the boat and the other half are at rest. And then... Um, uh, you have various jobs on the boat, which gets uh, changed around. So everyone has a crack at being the steering person or the, the mother. So that's called the mother, someone who does the 24-hour cooking shift. Okay. Um, provides food on and off the watches. Yeah, yeah. So hot bunking is? She, well, you get out of your bunk. And someone gets straight up back. Up, yeah. up top, work, yeah. and then back down. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you'll be sleeping in your wet weather gear by the sounds of it? Well, that's <laughs> what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But an li- adventure of a lifetime, that's what they Sounds good. Claim. We're going to have to get you back after you've completed this uh, sure. round the world race. should do some live yes. crosses. Yeah. Well, no, you're not allowed to have your phone. Thanks, Peter Ford. No, that's right. Goodbye. <laughs> good luck, Peter. Thank you. And uh, thanks for being on the show. But, yes, we're looking forward to having you back already. My pleasure. Uh, thanks also to Professor Rob Harcourt, to Mara Kelly and Dr Alicia Belgrove. And thank you, Cabin Boy. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a jam-packed show today. It has. Always good. Yes. Thank you, Nerida, very much for looking after the panel for us. And thanks to David, who will have this show up as a podcast in the next few days. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy with uh, Dr Nick and Prudence Dear. They'll take you through to 11 o'clock on next week's program. Um, I'll be back with Dr Beach and Cade. We'll be keeping it clean with Jackie Younger, speaking mm-hmm. with Rex Hunter and also... Jeff with uh, Soundwaves Goes Woke, which is the theme for 2023. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend and we'll catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Woo! Ah, that's right. Triple R. 
Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.